I ended up watching some Orson clips. He's so fascinating in interviews. Uh, I could just sit and watch it, you know, for hours, him talk. Yeah, well, that's that's like why he's so compelling in so many. That's why part of why F for Fake is so great, because even if you don't give a shit about the musings on artistry and everything, he's just like wildly entertaining and charismatic <laughs> as, you know, a personality. I was doing research for the just the Sesame Street piece, because, of course, he said that it was the greatest contribution to television or whatever. And I wanted to go watch back and watch like the Dick Cavett clip. And uh, inside all of that, it, he's also talking about like meeting Hitler and Churchill. <laughs> I'm like, oh, shit. I'm, I was just digging for like the most frivolous quote. And here's like a I, here I am watching 20 minutes at Orson Welles on Hitler and Churchill and really expanding my life. Part of it as well is that he knows that he's a performer, even in interviews and whatnot. And a yeah. lot of times he would just make shit up. Like, I wouldn't doubt if that Hitler <laughs> bit was total bullshit. You know because, the one, right? Uh, I don't think I know that one specifically. You'll like, have to, he like, was, submit a clip of it. But Yeah, he was out, like, backpacking and they just ran into a group of people. One of them was Hitler and he just thought nothing of him at all. Uh, Wells was just sat next to Hitler and was like, I don't, I don't care about this guy. He's not going to amount to anything. So uh, uh, in his estimation, not an impressive guy. That, that sounds like a bullshit Wells, but uh, <laughs> it's, a it's great one nonetheless. Yeah. It doesn't even matter that uh, he didn't or did go uh, backpacking and run across him, right? It's just but, a, uh, He did do stuff like that. Like he did spend part of his youth backpacking through Ireland. That was a, a real thing he did do. That sounds like you know totally made up and then like <laughs> him him like at, at the end of you know his journey when he found he'd like run out of money and food he showed up at like the gate theater and told them he'd been a big star on broadway <laughs> and they just believed him and that's how he got like a starring role you know in his first break in in theater is the gate theater and like most of that is true it's yeah. questionable as to if they actually believed him or if <laughs> yeah, they were right. just taken by his his you know charming demeanor and thought he would be a good addition but he did do all of that you know he did <laughs> so and does it always matter i mean i feel like he's always at play and fooling with the audience from like war of the worlds to f is fake to like this whole perception of what orson wells is uh even his nose you know we look at him and we're like is that a real person or a facade of a person acting as someone else well, that's that's the kind of idea I tried to explore in that April Fool's piece on F or Fake that oh, I wrote a couple yeah, of years ago. Yeah, everyone's got to read that. That yeah. that's lasted well, I think. The, yeah, definitely. The the idea that how much of it is is fakery and how much of that is is part of the idea of exploring <laughs> the nature of storytelling as as a facade and uh, you know the, the the kind of conceit behind all of Wells's films and his you know just approach to art in general. I just like the filmmaker who approaches film as trickery and as just a, a conversation with the audience that they're having and something they could twist and play around with. It, that's that's fun for me. Mm -hmm. Okay, I feel like that's a good intro. Now let's let's. I, I hope you you were recording that. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Uh, oh, I also, thank God. I also recorded the Stephen <laughs> bit so we could uh, start with Stephen. <laughs> we'll let him know our our true thoughts on him. He'll hear this first thing. Five uh, minutes oh, of complaints about him. <laughs> that, that reminds me, we need to introduce ourselves again. Oh we yeah, keep doing that. Okay, I'll count down. Okay. Okay. Let's just go right into Arclight. I think we have a cool intro with the Orson thing. So. Yeah, no, I liked that. Again, another another good one where we opened up on just casual conversation, and thank God you were recording. <laughs> <laughs> Five, four, three, two, one, go! 
go. Oh, was I supposed to go at go or before uh, go? Yeah, I'll piece it together. Okay. As long as yeah. we're both recording a thing. Okay, what if we both say go like at the same time here? That way you can match it up better. Oh, should we do that? All right, so, uh, so three, two, two, one, go. go! Uh, ours was off again. It sounded right to me. Okay. It sounded in sync. Whatever, you'll figure it out. <laughs> I like the enthusiastic go. I feel like that's a good energy to uh, start a show with. So. Better than better than a clapboard where you know how a lot of people do like the, the clap sounds thing. Is it though? Maybe I should get a clapboard for maybe I mean that's that's what the whole idea of a clapboard was to begin with, but uh I like I like go. I think everyone should like like that's how they should have started every take of every film. <laughs> like just have someone walk in front of the camera and say, Go. I guess in Clint Eastwood films, when he would start his shots, he would just say, um, he'd count out or be like a, okay, go ahead. <laughs> you know he wouldn't have like the uh climatic like you know that that big clapboard he'd just be like okay go do your thing like just very naturalistically like he's talking to an actor just like okay say your line now you know that doesn't, that doesn't seem very good for post-production purposes because the whole idea of the clapboard <laughs> uh like well, well maybe part claps of it, too right yeah but, well, well part of the reason because there's information on the clapboard so that when you look at the the film in the editing room you can see what number take this was what day it was shot on you know the scene well, it correlates to and all that so you can actually organize your footage i wouldn't be surprised if he's abandoned the whole process and he does one shot of everything and you know <laughs> that seems very likely from the, the mule and uh to paris uh his recent yeah. work well anyway. um I think that's. I think we've covered the two personalities of film: the Wells and <laughs> Orson Wells and Clint Eastwood. The, I think that covers matrix, both of our interests. That's the <laughs> matrix of all film, right there. <laughs> A very diverse uh, portfolio of film that we've built around this podcast. Yeah. Um, and I'm uh, Calvin Kemp, and this is David Punch with the Twin Geeks. Yes. Uh, welcome back to the Twin Geek Cast. We have a interesting show. It's it's another Western show, which is a kind we love to do. Yeah, uh, it's been a little bit, I think, since our last Western, but not too long. We've had longer Western hiatuses, but uh, I, I managed to wrangle us back into the, the era of classic Westerns this time. The the Twin Geek Cast Rides Again is... Uh... <laughs> That's a good subtitle for this one. <laughs> There's uh, We have other things to cover, too. I've been at SIF, so I think I have five or six movies to quickly breeze over, but... Uh, in more tragic, and we have your documentary later, but in more tragic news, the Arclight and Cinerama Theaters are closing nationwide uh, permanently. Uh, po every possibility that some of these locations will be recovered by other studios, that uh, people will step in, raise money, um, especially it's, the Dome in Hollywood, they'll probably yeah, save. But. It's almost certain that at least that institution will be saved as you know an icon of Los Angeles, uh, most certainly. Uh, but it's, you know, uh, what its ultimate uh, destiny will be in terms of who's going to pick it up and everything. And uh, the future of theaters as a whole uh, is, is, you know, thrown into contention here, seeing that even a grand institution like that can go under uh, with all the restrictions and issues here with the pandemic. It's a real tragedy. Uh, I've seen like already speculation that, you know, one of the streaming people like Netflix or whoever will might pick it up as they did with like the Egyptian theater already but um you know so it's it's not necessarily that the theaters are are gone but the experience and the personnel behind them yeah. is is the real loss that i think a lot of people are currently mourning and, and rightfully so because the 
you know, the uh, arc lights uh, and the Pacific theater chains, you know, they were, they were really um, run by people who truly cared about films. These were just like your, yeah. you know, run of the mill. Uh, they weren't like chains. the big chains. They yeah. Were, yeah. It was a local, local series of chains. And again, in, you know, what might be the most covetous, you know, group of uh, movie lovers, you know, regionally in the world. Right. Out of, out of Los Angeles. There. I, I mean, movie culture is LA culture. It is, it is California culture. So it is a really tragic loss to an American institution that, I mean, we just had once upon a time in Hollywood, which like grandly features, you know, that, that Cinerama dome and the, like mm-hmm. the facade outside. And uh, we, we just had it appear lovingly in a movie. I mean, it's like in the texture of that era of film, like very obviously, you know, like shooting back to like sixties, seventies, you, you see pictures of the Cinerama dome or you see like the, like the red and blue uh, facade outside or uh, Arclight just has a, a big impact too, for like a, not, not always like first runs, but for Hollywood access to older films and, yeah, well, yeah. it was also, you know, popular venues for premiering films as well. Right. Always a big deal over there. And so to see something as, as a, you know, iconic and big uh, as, as this chain, this whole chain of, of theaters go under like that is is, is really devastating. Um, you know, and, and it's definitely concerning for all the other smaller theaters around the country that, you know, have undoubtedly gone under as well that we haven't heard as much about and who pro- yeah. probably won't get bought out, you know, uh, like these ones will like, you know, it's almost certain that these theaters will come back in some manner, maybe not the manner that, you know, we hope. Um, but, you know, there's others that this kind of signals as well that this is, you know, uh, definitely going to be as, as much of a devastation for. It's definitely worrying looking down the lens of the end of the year that this is kind of make or break within this year for many chains. Like, I mean, like even Regal has said, like, we have enough money till uh, 2022. So what does that mean for smaller chains than Regal? Um, as I look into it, I'm getting my last shot this week and I'm able to go back to theaters. So I'm starting to plan around what ones to get back to. And obviously looking toward more independent fare than I was doing before. Right. Um, the, the issue with that more so comes less from the people who can go out again, which is increasing quite a bit over here in the United States, thankfully, right. as more people get vaccinated. But the theaters that are going to be open and available, because even, yeah. you know, big places over here, uh, like like the Hollywood still isn't open, obviously. Um, on, on the flip side of things, uh, I was going to say as well, real quickly, that just this past week, uh, the institution associated with the Hollywood theater, the rental place, Movie Madness, which we have fond memories of that have taken you to, uh, just celebrated their 30th anniversary this past week. Oh, I'm glad it's good news. Uh, in yes. conjunction with this, I was getting very worried because that's yeah, a I was, I was place. building yeah. up a little bit there, and it sounded <laughs> like bad. But no, they they are going very strongly. Still, lots of support uh, from you know very uh, a whole series of of benefactors. I've not heard any news at all that's kind of uh you know attested they might be in any kind of uh real trouble or anything they seem well supported by a community there certainly and you know they even found some ways to work through things you know like having movie madness as a facility as well to function still for rentals during the whole time as well as uh there was a a stretch of time where they were uh handing out concessions from from the theater lobby and selling them i didn't get a chance to get down in there because i don't live 
as well, close as I would like to, but <laughs> some of mine were doing that as well. Um, I I could have gone to like Arc Lodge and gone and got some popcorn, but if I'm not going to a movie, I'm probably not going to go for a popcorn meet and greet. I, I would have liked to but... to to even just yeah. like support them, just to say I will buy some popcorn just to <laughs> yeah. give you some money. That seems like a nice thing to do. It was just it wasn't like feasible for for how far I live away because I'm across the river. So uh, otherwise, I, guess, I would ever. <laughs> I guess after this weekend, my trial is I'm going to Grand Illusion Arc Lodge and the Admiral. Um, within the next few weeks, I, I'm getting back to the movies. So uh, it is. Very- wait. You'll have to. You know what you need to do? You know, you'll need to write a piece about your first time back at the theater since the the pandemic. I think that would that would play like gangbusters. I think. Man, but it, it might just be like me and one other guy in the. I, I don't know if that matters, but I, I it might I, be. You know. I think it does. I think you're going to have a rush of emotions <laughs> sitting in that theater seat again and, you know, seeing the big screen light up and everything. You're going to think back oh, yeah. to the last film you saw and, you know, think Which... about how different this this experience will be. Good. I don't remember if First Cow or The Way Back was my last film, but it was one of those two. But man, it's been a while, over a year now. So... I know. It's, it's really crazy. So I think there'll be lots of emotions you'll be feeling for those first couple moments, and I think it'll make for some great writing. Maybe uh, if Maybe after I get to like one or two, I could I could start writing about like what it, what it was maybe, like to return. Maybe so. Regardless, I'm putting you on for the hook here so that I expect to see it sometime <laughs> in the near future. Some like experiential piece about our return and and what it feels like. I think emotively written would be better than like a analysis of what that means. Exactly, like, exactly. Just uh, just an expression of appreciation for yeah. you know the return to to movies in the theater. I think that's uh, not only going to be a great read, but an important one, you know, to, to you hear. have to grab my camera. Okay, we'll work on <laughs> we'll work on that later. Uh, great. Uh, I'm just so excited to be coming back that I am already overwhelmed that the opportunity is within like a, a week or two arm reach. Um, until then, uh, we have another <laughs> Seattle institution, SIF, uh, uh, the Seattle International Film Festival, the, the tagline <laughs> for which this year is, it's happening. Uh, <laughs> it I, is happening, uh, though, you know, uh, I'm not sure that everyone knows how. Yeah, um, I'm afraid a, a lot of people didn't grant get granted access to it, and a lot of people just haven't been in the loop. So uh, uh, very difficult communication, but my heart also goes out to like this uh, institution where everyone's been laid off and they're working with a skeleton crew to get an entire film festival up and running, which is just an incredible achievement in itself to get something running. So I, I understand the difficulty in not having capacity to do a full press breach on like a a 92 film slate, right? Like I, I totally get it. And I, I support them anyway, because I mean, there's Sith. There, there are one institution in Seattle where we could reach out and watch international films once a year. Uh, uh, against any odds, we'll always get international films at Sith. So uh, it is an important window to other cultures and um, partners with a lot of uh, organizations in Seattle that allow these things to happen and grant us access to like these uh, French cinema and uh, you know just cinema from somewhere other than Seattle. It, it's really great to have that in an independent scene. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As with uh, any major festival, uh, you know, around and and SIF is definitely one of the bigger ones in the region here. So it's the, the, the well, it's the most attended 
festival in the United States, but I think largely that's because it goes for a whole month usually, right? Like uh, it's easy to be most attended if you go for, you know, one twelfth of the year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and but, oh, still, I, I mean, I wish every festival were, were that long, more exposure, more opportunities. You know, I wish this one were. <laughs> this one's only like a week, I believe, a week or two. Um, so we're going to do the first half of this this week. Uh, do you know much about these movies? I don't know uh, if you know what we're even talking about. I, I don't know. Like, I've seen you, like, whenever you mention them, you know, or, or whatever, that you're watching them or whatnot. But I don't usually go, oh, hey, what's this, you know, Sith film that Calvin's watching? Let me yeah. do a deep dive on it and learn everything. <laughs> okay. I, I just sent you a link to some a list there so you could at least look. Um, uh, well, we're looking at a Bossom Terex Mogul Mogli first which uh, has Riz Ahmed uh, once again kind of being typecast because uh, he just did Sound of Metal, which was, um, I don't even know if I want to call it typecasting, right? Because he did Sound of Metal where he is a disabled musician who learns how to like power through and find his way through life otherwise. And in this, he's a disabled rapper who kind of does the same thing. Um, he has- a That sounds like legs. typecasting. Yeah, it does, but- but then I watched a short film that Riz Ahmed was involved with, which is like a rap about being Pakistani and uh, getting held down by the cops as people were deported from his house. And I was like, oh, shit, this might be like a really personal thing because some of the lyrics are bleeding over into this rap movie. And this might be like from the genesis of that mix with the reception of Sound of Metal. This might be the movie, you know, that he really wanted to make personally. So in a way, I could see that it's both typecasting and, and that he's doing it for himself. I guess I guess the question more so is a a matter of you know like because like, you also have to consider you know this was probably made before Sound of Metal was even released yeah, so it's possible I it's, don't know the timeline probably coincidental I'm going to assume I, like because I don't like he isn't even you know like he's just got his Oscar nomination yeah yeah like it's I don't think there's been enough prestige or momentum pushed behind that yet for this film to have like capitalized on it you know i think at the very at the very least it's coincidental that they were conceived around the same time before them came out right like they were both shot before this came out this has been out in the uk for a while too and i don't even think sound of metals out there or it came out there this week so uh for them this launched before um and it is a british uh, rap movie you kind of think like something like eight mile or something like but following a pakistani guy and it deals with culture and how that bleeds into arts, I I really like it, but uh, not not as great as Sound of Metal, in my opinion. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, another one will be a Little Girl, which follows the journey of a trans girl. I'm, I I guess I have difficulty as a parent in some way dealing with the idea of cataloging such a potentially traumatic moment in a child's life, but but I see like the intrinsic social value. Uh, because we don't have many documents of someone going through the transition as a child in France. So is, uh, is this a documentary? It is. Yeah. Okay. And it, it's one of those that feels like it could be either. It could be either documentary or like creative documentary. It feels like the, um, the situations are like immensely deep and, and, and really hard to deal with as a parent uh, watching the bullying that goes on and, and how um, the whole society, even in France, of course, we, we think very, insular we're very insular about our thinking and we think oh like these problems just happen here but they're everywhere uh very difficult for anyone to transition so 
there's definitely a lot of questions, you know, as the culture kind of uh, comes to accept this idea of, uh, you know, transitioning from, you know, uh, assigned gender to, you know, uh, their, you know, real gender, uh, and particularly in the kind of nebulous line in terms of age and when the responsi- responsibility is to make that decision. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it what it takes is a lot of, uh, you know, research and exposure in you know, documents like this or through other, you know, means of like, like research and, um, you know, uh, study, study and such like that to, to see the, the viability of it and, and where that is as we come to understand this, uh, you know, phenomenon a little bit better. And, and so cer- certainly as, you know, I, I can see your perspective as a parent being a little more cautious about it and concerned. I'd, about- I'd just be afraid because they're getting bullied already. And to make like the film is just like giving, you know, it's, it's giving a lot of ammo. <laughs> and I, I, I get concerned as a parent. Right. Yeah. And I, and I certainly see that sympathize and, and can agree to an extent, you know, uh, like on the other hand, I think it's so important to document and just exactly. as a parent, I was so tearful. I don't even want to get into like the emotional layer of it. No crying in the club on this podcast. <laughs> yes, it's 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 gotta be, you know, brought to our attentions somehow, some way. And you know, the the documentary is, you know, perhaps the best form uh to bring such materials to our attention. Um, I guess the next one I'd go over is uh uh, slalom which is uh, about the uh, skier who's a kid and another comfort- uncomfortable one for me uh, she's sexually molested by her coach and it looks it's such a realistic gritty film that i i just feel completely uncomfortable watching the whole thing um a, a lot of discomfort at this year's if it turns out <laughs> uh, a lot of people are making uncomfortable films that confront um, difficult realities so uh, that's a major trend in the modern movies. Uh, Cer- certainly, I, I agree with that. You know, uh, a lot of most of our dramatic films nowadays definitely deal with these uh, societal issues that you know continue to be you know prominent, and um, that it seems like you know we're making very little progress on. And so, I think the the art of our our current time reflects that in a lot of ways, whether it be the issues of um, you know racism that you know uh, prevalent. Uh, are prevalent throughout our our culture or you know the issues of sexism and abuse you know that you know continue to go uh on uh unaddressed you know on a grander scale um i'd say it's still a really good movie it just makes me so uncomfortable i don't know who to recommend it to it's not something i could ever watch again uh but slalom it's a very kinetic movie. Everything's always in motion. Uh, Charlene Favier is the director. I don't know if she's new, but I suspect it's nearly a debut at least. And it's it shows so much potential for movement and understanding how characters like work within a frame. And it's so fast. Like the skiing looks really beautiful, and it's really good at getting like that crisp, but um, kind of devastating and isolating like winter air. It has that airiness of winter in it that that feels harsh and biting. Uh, really good uh, French film, so, uh, but but also very heavy, and I wouldn't watch it again. So yeah. I, I never know what to do with a recommendation like that. Uh, it's like this is good, but don't watch it. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel that the, the films that are just like utterly devastating and and crushing, and but yeah. but but very but very moving fine pieces. Yeah, yeah like. Uh, 
it, it, it is hard to find the line there. Like, you know, if, if you want to feel miserable about things, <laughs> yeah, but in, in a good way. I guess that, yeah, I think we've seen a lot of these child predatory movies too. So I've kind of seen this movie play out in a hundred different scenarios, right? Of modern movies. I think uh, that speaks I'm to how, how badly we're addressing this issue. Yeah. You know, and even as we go into accusations against, you know, congressmen, uh, you know, being a, a major issue currently, um, it, it really is like a, like a prevalent issue. <laughs> It's very strange because, well, the kid's supposed to be like 15, but it's also the grittiest, realest looking sex I've seen in the movie in recent oh, years. Oh, so. okay. Yeah, that that definitely, I can see why like that it, would be quite quite disturbing. It almost it almost looks like they're really having sex. I mean, I, I was convinced and I rarely am anymore. I think a lot of modern movies make it look, you know, a little bit obvious that there's like a sock there or something. Uh, but but some movies make it look like there's some real insertion and like penetration going, and I'm like, okay, she's 15. I just I'm, uh, of course, the actress <laughs> is 22, so uh, that's one thing. But yeah, um, there's a Summer of '85 by Francois Ozon, which I am very split on as a director. Uh, I believe they're very average. I, I've only seen Swimming Pool and Summer of '85 and. Uh, one or two others, I believe, Double Lover, Eight Women. Um, so Eight Women, I think you'd probably be most interested in because it's like a play on the musicals and it's got like Catherine, uh, Catherine uh, Denevue and uh, Isabel Hooper in it. So mm. you might be like interested in like that play on a musical, but the others I think uh, don't show that knack for filmmaking. Uh, he's kind of like split between like a wanting to be Hitchcock, De Palma-esque, but not quite having the assets and tools to get there. Hmm. Um, so this one begins like as a murder mystery, something like Swimming Pool too, where uh, it's just like French summer vacation and, you know, there's romantic triangles and trying to like break down um, a psychosexual drama. <laughs> uh, a boy goes out in a boat, another boy comes out and saves him after a storm capsizes it. I, I like a lot of the movie. I like that it begins with Cure. I like anything that has like the 80s new wave summer feel so uh, i think there are textures to his films and fabrics of summer that look really good um and and i'm i'm interested in francois ozon but i just don't think he's that special i feel like he might be the most average french filmmaker working right now and that is interesting that you've uh, cultivated an interest for someone who you find middling <laughs> i think there's something to being middling though i mean there's something to like that de palma-esque really breezy summer film that that doesn't lift off, but kind of has some potential behind it. I, I think there's something there. I, I don't think it's amazing. I just think there's a, there's a place for that. Isn't that like a really similar title to like a, a horror film or something? <laughs> there was a last summer of 84, year. summer of 84 uh, yeah. from two years ago. So that's, uh, that's just very funny that I reviewed summer of 84 on the site as well. So that's just very funny to me that they've come out like, you know, the, these two films with very similar titles. <laughs> and what I find interesting is looking at IMDb, they don't even have the like apostrophe before the number, like you usually no. do when, when shortening uh, a whole year like that. So they're very similar titles, <laughs> but sound like very different films yeah not a sequel at all um <laughs> uh summer of 84 had that really cool poster with like the kid on the milk and uh, yeah that was a uh, okay this one this one looks like a 
like it's got big call me by your name vibes from the poster i'd say that's pretty accurate but um just just in terms of the design and you know like the subjects on there i i don't know if there's any similarities in like the actual content of the film i tried hard not to bring it up <laughs> i think it's really there i mean i think it's hard to avoid uh, okay so it so it is like a kind of derivative or i think you could see the luca threads there too something between luca and uh i wouldn't i wouldn't say it's I mean, there are, there's plenty of room to make stories about young men in love in a, you know, a seaside summer town. I, I think that's yeah. Fine. But the the poster just it, it really, oh, yeah. really calls to mind. It it really calls to mind that comparison. I mean, if you I'm, put I'm, the I'm, other I literally, name on there, it would be. I, look, I'm I'm literally looking at the "Call Me by Your Name" poster. Yeah, and it's like it's not even like just the yellow text and the blue sky. Like you've literally got the red shirt as well. That's you know connected there, and the the head on shoulders, everything that like <laughs> like it looks, it looks like a dupe. I, oh, I hate to say. <laughs> Well, I kind of feel that way about the director too. So uh, <laughs> I, I think there's a place for him though to keep making average, um, mediocre movies the way he has been. Somebody's got to do it. Anyway, Francois Zone, you're called out. I'm calling you out <laughs> as average and mediocre. That's all there is I could say. Uh, uh, look forward to his retort uh, as our guest <laughs> next week. I wish I, I would <laughs> I would engage in that conversation. Uh, there's Street Gang. Uh, should we go over this last one? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think uh, one more here, and then we'll then we'll move on. When's okay. it my turn? <laughs> <laughs> right after this, Street Gang: How We Got to Sesame Street, which is a story about how uh, Sesame Street was developed for the urban inner city audience, which was being kind of deprived by television. Uh, it it made the uh, barrier to access extremely low, so I put it on public television and kind of revitalized the children's entertainment industry as the first children's show to compete commercially with other television shows at the time. Uh, for me, very for me, one difficult point about it is that HBO has taken over new episodes of Sesame Street. So for me, that means that for inner city use that don't have HBO and don't have access to a premium network, they no longer have public access television uh, as new runs of Sesame Street until nine months later. And that's if their PBS station chooses to pick it up. Uh, so there's a lot of ifs in that scenario that they have to choose to run a nine month old show uh, for someone in an urban market to receive it. And then HBO makes this documentary about Sesame Street and how the whole point of Sesame Street is that it's an appeal to the urban youth. And I'm like, well, this is kind of fucked, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, other than that scenario, I think it's very important to document, and it's good. But, but that I'm I'm really hung up on that idea. Certainly, I think it's an interesting thing, uh, and, and it's particularly because it's such a cultural icon uh, mm -hmm. and institution. Uh, it's very interesting to hear the history of it and go over it a bit more. I got a little taste of that from the uh, Carol Spinney uh, documentary. The a really I, good I'm, one too. I'm Big Bird. I'm uh, Big Bird. Uh, I love that one a lot. That one was very touching uh, well, for me. We also had like being Elmo and we're, we're kind of like getting a whole influx of these PBS documentaries. We had the uh, Mr. Rogers one and then yep. we had the Tom Hanks, Mr. Rogers movie. Like there's a whole cultural interest in going back over these things. So I think it's good. We're very nostalgic for the things we grew up on, certainly. Yeah. And uh, but particularly the, you know, these ones who are so instrumental in our education, because it's not like, you know, there's there's a billion other shows that were kind of like Sesame Street and appealing were, to yeah. kids, told me about, but none really 
affected the the culture and you know taught kids and and gave them an outlet like something you know like sesame street did wouldn't you say it's reading rainbow sesame street and mr rogers as like a trifecta or was there another that there there probably is that i'm just not remembering particularly because like i came in at like the tail end of most of these and i wasn't like i didn't necessarily get raised on them as a right. child of the right. 90s i mean they never ended really i mean sesame street's still going yeah yeah it's end. it's still going and, and so that one i have the the most memory of uh, as opposed to like mr rogers but yeah i would i would say that trifecta is pretty accurate i'd say the the one thing that kind of rescues that feeling is there's five different decades of sesame street stories that pbs could show so there's potentially still an audience out there watching sesame street in urban markets Did you say uh, five decades yeah i believe there's at least five decades of sesame street. 50 50 years of sesame i believe street. so Is yeah right hold on it's it's 2020 that would be like 1970 i can't be yeah, right yeah that seems right i mean you're you may be right but i just i feel like i need to double check okay this let's find that out. sounds sesame street start that sounds crazy to me Okay, 1969 was the start of Sesame Street. Really? Really? Yeah. Wow, 50 years. You're right. That That's crazy. That, it literally doesn't feel like that long, but yeah, that's that's insane. It is crazy to look back at some of those early ones, how um, elemental they were of what they were trying to like produce here. Very crude drawings, and uh, they wanted it just to be a... a a show about guys like on the street like there were no puppets initially they but that didn't play very well with kids while they had this puppet segment that played extremely well so they really leaned into that but i never thought about the neighborhood as a construction of harlem to approach like a different generation of youth like that that's really impressive to me and i saw a lot of my white privilege watching it and not yeah. realizing that these things matter like not realizing that that has an impact because I was raised in a rural area, right? Like, I, I think that's definitely a, a major thing. And if you look back at the show or even just like think about it for a second, you're like, oh, this this really is like an inner city setting with a diverse yeah. cast, you know, and specifically appealing to, uh, you know, a, a kind of more, you know, like, uh, I want to say destitute, but, you know, like, no. like you know, more impoverished um you know area of the country well it's and, definitely and trying yeah it's definitely trying to prep them for school because they might not have access to to you know resources to do that so it's meeting kids you know before they get to school and it's a great preparation for uh underprivileged children that that can't quite get there yet so it's mm -hmm. a really beautiful thing i love that the documentary exists i i just wish hbo would you know kind of loosen the reins on that stuff yeah, it's a it's a shame that uh, I mean I, I think that's also just a product of underfunding for for public access you know it's channels up, yeah. and you know really not like not enough money being put into these uh, utilities I think for for the the country and the service here and so it it does fall on the likes of the you know the the private businesses to to pick them up and it is unfortunate when they either don't think or choose not to. Uh, make that a more uh, widely accessible resource. Um, which reminds me, I did have a PBS documentary, but let's go with yours first. Yeah. <laughs> you want me to go back? Mine, mine will. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to run mine right into our, our okay. main segment. So I'll let you go a little let bit. Let me more just go quickly then. Yeah. I watched the Ken Burns Hemingway documentary. Right, right, right. Yeah. Right. Nearly, nearly spaced on including this in the show. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, you did uh, almost. Uh, I think I brought this to your attention by talking about Ken Burns a lot, didn't I? I think I 
I think my wife found it on the on the PBS there. Um, I didn't. But... Yeah, I hadn't realized they were doing it because I I know they announced a bunch of his, but they said the first one up was his Muhammad Ali one. Is that out now as well, or it might be out or coming? I I haven't seen. I don't know. I just saw the news that like he had this long list of ones he was going over, <laughs> like including a history of like the buffaloes and a history of the Revolutionary War and such. And I'm like, this is all fantastic stuff. I'm interested in everything. And of course, you you finding the Hemingway one just seems like like destiny bringing you together here. Oh yeah, there's a it's just a perfect moment for me. And so far, my favorite film of the year is this three part six hour Ken Burns Hemingway documentary. I love all the stuff. I love going to Paris and watching Ezra Pound uh, ingratiate him to the literary market, like with that circle of literary magazines in Paris. And it reminds me that like Ezra did give him his big break, and that like all these people that he met. And it was really like who you knew in the 1920s and uh, circulating around like Gertrude Stein and Sherwood Anderson, like that whole circle. Um, there's there's always an impulse with a Hemingway documentary to look at the myth mythology of the man, largely the stuff that Hemingway created, like in a Wellesian way that we were talking about, he would go lie about like the most inane shit that he would do. Like he'd say that he got eight or nine medals in the war and, you know, and he was just like, his leg was blown off in Italy and he got like a ton of shrapnel in it, but uh, he got one medal. So uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of myth building and he'd talk about like catching the largest sharks. And um, there's, there's a lot of hyper masculinity behind all that identity that a lot of documentaries play into he, this he's one, definitely become like a, a caricature of yeah. that ideal and then he's been like paradized and adapted into so many ideas wells in particular was was interested in uh, friends with uh hemingway mm -hmm. to an extent so and it's very interesting to me because i've read every book of his and i've read all the short stories so i know there's a lot more to him because i know that the best documentary of hemingway or the best memoir are the ones that he's written i mean i know what a movable feast has told me about hemingway and i know what every other uh biography i've read has told me um i really like the anthony burgess one uh people know him from writing like clockwork orange and a hundred other books um but his on hemingway i think really gets to him as a man and i think this one does too this ken burns piece is really good at balancing the myth what we believe like actual racism of hemingway and and it's good at investigating the very problematic parts of the person like anti-Semitism and like sun also rises and a lot of his bullshit beliefs and uh, tendencies and treatment towards women. And it, uh, most interestingly, it does a lot more for his mother than any documentary I've seen. Uh, there's more of Mama Hemingway there and, and there's uh, more interest on his concussions than I've ever seen. He had eight or nine concussions and Ken Burns is the only documentary I've seen put any interest in it. So uh, I think we have a lot more information about the brain, how all that works and why that could have led to a lot of erratic behavior and uh, inactivity later in life. So I'm glad this really sheds a lot of light on how important that is in the Hemingway story. It sounds terrific. Um, you know, certainly I think one of the, the greatest assets of Ken Burns's style is just like being able to go in for any amount of time needed for the documentary to, <laughs> to really like dive into the, the personality and profile yeah. of his person or subject and uh so yeah if it needs to be a six-part series it will be if it needs to be a 40-hour yeah. series it will be yeah <laughs> and, whatever it needs to be he'll he'll fill the time and that's and it's terrific it's usually never wasted time no. either it really no. feels like you're getting you know a a you know insane amount of information at, at every moment and so 
you know, to, to have him cover a subject like that as well uh, is, is terrific. And I'm excited to see the rest of what he uh, pulls out. Certainly means the world to me having like this really important document done now. And it might stay my favorite film of the year for a good while, but we'll see late I, in the I, year. I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> uh, I do have one question about it. Yeah. Uh, did his relationship with Marlena Dietrich come up at all? I, I don't remember specifically if that did. Uh, okay. That's interesting because it's a, I thought it was a good transitionary point as well because they were good friends. Marlene Dietrich was very close to Ernest Hemingway and mm-hmm. had a great uh, affection for him. If not explicitly romantic, then, then certainly it was one of the deeper connections she had uh, in her life, um, which allows me to talk about my documentary of the week, which is the Trick and Hemingway. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a it's actually just called Marlena. It's from okay. 19, 1984. and uh, it was by uh, Maximilian Schell, is the, uh, the the director of it. And he was a, an actor, another uh, uh, German-born actor, uh, who actually starred alongside her in uh, Judgment at Nuremberg in nineteen sixty-one. Uh, he plays one of the, the main roles there, so he sat down. Uh, with some conversations with uh, for, with her to go over kind of her whole career in the late 80s. Uh, she had about four or five years left of her life at that point, uh, maybe a little bit more. And it's, it's a really interesting documentary because she made it at a point in her life where she was bedridden and had, had no other prospects. She, you know, resigned herself to not doing anything anymore, but she was essentially out of money. And so she agreed to do this, you know, this profile uh, for for the money for it, but in her usual very guarded style, uh, she's very cagey about the whole process. Very strict about things. She refused to appear on camera. Uh, there were certain days they had to record in English. Certain days they conducted questions in German, uh, and and there were supposed to be certain days in French, but that didn't happen. Um, <laughs> and and the whole process is just like this very bizarre and and mixed and uh, un you know you know, organized process. And so Shell then had to kind of piece together a, a series because it was really supposed to be more of kind of like this fluff piece or whatever, this kind of over, you know, overview history of her career and her life and everything. But because she chose to be so guarded and, and you know, so uh, uncooperative at some points uh, and, and just outright lying at other points, it really forced Shell to reconsider how to present the documentary and well, so she didn't she didn't like to be interviewed did she, she... no no not particularly <laughs> and, and so she really had done this you know kind of begrudgingly and only because she needed the money uh and and then you hear in some of the clips because it's, it's very interesting to to hear her talk about this. And, and and the whole concept of it to begin with and that she's like still she's like giving you this information about herself while refusing to actually present herself publicly. Like she refused to be photographed at this point in her uh, older age. And so this, this idea that you already have this facade. So the whole documentary is essentially this very interesting experiment in trying to peel back the layers of this enigmatic and and guarded and uh, you know, fabricated personality. Does it, would you say it does it successfully? Uh, I would say as a, as an experiment, expressive art as, as a, a work of art, you know, in the kind of way that a documentary needs to be. It's one of the most impressive, you know, efforts at that that I've seen because uh, Max Schell really has to like take efforts to find information and present it in the format there to, 
you know, go with and dive into the meaning behind her words and what she's <laughs> trying to keep guarded and everything. He uses lots of footage of her from films to juxtapose what she's saying. He investigates further and he finds revealing information that she's explicitly lying about. Okay. Um, and, and the way in which he presents her, like when she does blow up at him for asking certain questions or refuses to be like and she's just outright belligerent to him in interviews by maintaining that in the documentary it's more revealing than anything she could have said candidly you know about her actual history like it, mm -hmm. it really is i think a revealing profile of her as an artist and personality and enigmatic figure by like showcasing her as she was and trying to do more with the format of the documentary to you know dig into that and find out why that is and what it means and kind of reflect upon that. Actually sounds pretty amazing to me. <laughs> it, it is, I think. And again, like watching it, I was like, this feels like, like it's not just a, you know, a recording of or a regurgitation yeah. of information. Like it feels like an actual work of documentary and investigation. Yeah. Exactly. Like, and he really had to make efforts to turn this into something interesting uh, re reportedly, uh, when when she did see the documentary after it was released, um, Marlena Dietrich was was very horrified by the things <laughs> oh, that, <really? laughs> that she was saying. She's like, I didn't say that, you know, or, or like, you know, why are they framing it that way or showing that? And it's literally just like her words saying then how how like it it makes her come across. And it's it's really interesting then again to show how the format can you know present someone in a way that they don't think that they're they're coming across but also like that's also a symptom of her just being you know like belligerent and guarded and you know poor with her her memory yeah, yeah. how she came across but no it's it's really terrific i think and, and just fascinating i think as as a, as a documentary because it, you know it, it takes these efforts because i think another interesting angle is just seeing her talk about this idea is like she talks about like modern phenomena like the you know more re recent of that time you know movements of feminism and she's like bristling against it like she she has these very like victorian senses of what a woman should be and how she should you know just like curtail to her husband's desires and beliefs and everything and it's just hilarious and like ironic seeing this juxtaposed with images of like her in morocco dressed in a man's suit which was so like controversial for the times and, and kissing a woman you know on screens in in this act of again like, like this she's this paragon of modern feminism in movies and she's railing against the current movements at the same time we're seeing them on screen and it's so it's it, so it's fascinating to see these conflicting aspects of her personality and i think the those are where you see Max Schell's instincts as a documentarian really shine through. It's interesting when you see someone that's so provocative and so early to a movement, sometimes the movement starts in earnest and they feel it's behind where they were, you know, and they want out. Right. Just like how like un unaware she was of the strides she was making or how unwilling to kind of like reconcile with how the, you know, that impacted uh, our, our culture, because famously Marlena Dietrich is is quite the symbol of sexual progressivism. Uh, you know, uh, very very famously, she was uh, exceedingly popular around town. Uh, yeah, uh, of her, of her own volition and with anybody of of any sex and in any opportunity in particular. And it's this very empowering ideal, and that was just her her way of going about things in in life and in her prospects here but the idea but and it's interesting to see how that conflicts with her her beliefs of you know how women should otherwise conduct themselves it, it's again like, like just this very interesting 
profile of her that is exposed not only by her her own words and her own expressions but by you know her history being juxtaposed against there and you know the perspectives brought to that uh, and the insights of uh, her her films and her work and her career well i think we'll have an interesting reading especially on her as an actor and how that relates to what this documentary is in a minute but uh, shall yeah. we take a break yeah let's take a quick break and we'll come back with uh, destry rides again what the boys in the back room will have and tell them I'm having the same. Go see what the boys in the back room will have and give them the poison they name. And when I die, don't spend my money on flowers and my picture in a frame. Just see what the boys in the back room Okay, what are we doing? A Western. Yes, talking about uh, Western, 1939, Destry Rides Again. 1939, such an incredible year for movies. Isn't Um, it? Isn't it, though? Gone with the Wind, Wizard of Oz, Stagecoach. um, There's there's more. (laughs) I'm sure a couple other movies came out that year. Oh, oh, yeah. Uh, I'm I'm just going to look it up again here real quick. Those are just the ones I I popped off the top of my head. Those, Those two MGM ones in particular. Oh, yes, of course. Uh... This this actually coincidentally I'm gonna say goes along with the the other uh, enigmatic uh, European diva of the screens making her transition to comedy with uh, Greta Garbo and Nanachka. I was also in 1939. Okay. Also got uh, Gunga Din. Uh, uh, you've got Only Angels Have Wings, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Uh, your favorite uh, horror movie, of course, Son of Frankenstein, came out this year. Oh, maybe not such a good year. <laughs> but no, this, and then of course, uh, Destry Rides Again, uh, com- coming alongside with the, the likes of Stagecoach here to kind of revive the Western genre from its, you know, middling uh, reputation I mean- uh, throughout the 30s. I think even Stewart had another film this year, uh, Mr. Smith, right? Yeah, or, uh... yeah, I, I said Mr. Smith. Okay, you did. But yeah, okay. that was so. 1939 is actually a very interesting year for both the stars here, for Stewart because this really cemented his stardom. These two films here, like they really catapulted him after he was in uh, Capra's previous film, You Can't Take It With You, which had won the the best picture that year. That kind of got everyone talking, and then these two films really like catapulted him to to superstardom. And then he followed up with an Oscar win in 1940 for Philadelphia Story. Whereas, it's nice uh, because like within this one year, we're getting these two like really broad ideas of what a western could be. Uh, yeah, especially... and I think they're very interesting for how different they are, and ha- but and how they're both subversive and how they really shake up the formula of the West. <laughs> they really do. So early, uh, they, they arrive so early and provide a spin on it that a lot of movies wouldn't for several years after. Uh, I mean, I think about like the lineage of them. And of course they see like a strong lineage of stagecoach that leads to every Western I love. And then I look at this one and I see a lot of remakes and then like blazing saddles, which, uh, you know, I see like, there's still like a comedic Western, lineage there it's just not like the one but blazing saddles is a very great comparison point because not only is it like the you know the kind of er western parody that always comes to mind but it's literally like madeline khan is literally channeling marlena dietrich from this (laughs) film when she's playing lily von stupp it's um you know it's and dietrich only played in one other western aside from this one which was uh really campy kind of bizarre uh 
uh, Western directed by Fritz Long in the like, what? 1950s. What called, is it? It's called Rancho Notorious. What? Yeah, it's very, very bizarre, very kitschy, uh, and very cheap looking. This well. sounds like my material. I, I need to get on this. Uh, I, I, I would recommend checking it out only for how kind of odd it is. And, and like I said, it's, it's really like a good camp fun thing uh mm. i don't think it's a good movie but it's definitely like interesting to see unlike this which is i think a, a genuinely great movie and innovative and interesting from all uh all sides here i think it's good i i think it's very modern and brisk i i'm so impressed by watching it it doesn't feel far off of blazing saddles you couldn't tell that there were this many years apart i think like the formatting already looks like what people mean when they're like oh Editing was created in the 80s. Fuck off to them. <laughs> who says uh, that? <laughs> you know who says it, our friend Will. Um, <laughs> I, when I hear things like that, I'm like, that's that can't be true because there were these modern brisk movies. Like like you're saying about Dietrich, this movie's just naturally modern and advanced, I believe. Well, and it's really interesting for her because this was a, a comeback film from her, uh, which you wouldn't guess based on her history of films in the 1930s. This is just a little bit after her uh, famous collaboration with uh, Joseph von Sternberg kind of uh, sizzled out in the 1930s, that string of um, collaborations they had where she was very super glamorous throughout. There are all these very prestige pictures. <laughs> but in, in 1939, actually, uh, she had been listed. There was this very infamous uh, article in, in the reporter, I think it was, uh, that labeled this list of stars mm. uh, as, as box office poison. Is, is what the list is referred to. And Marlena Dietrich was one of the prominent ones listed. Basically, it was a coalition of uh, theater you know, chain owners who said, uh, you studios, stop employing these people. You keep putting all these monies into their salaries and pictures, and they don't make any money. People aren't going to see Marlena Dietrich. Nobody's going to see Catherine Hepburn anymore. They're poison at the box office. And so with Destry Rides again, it really shakes up her formula and her image of this kind of screen diva you know, who's basically like put on a pedestal in all these pictures. And, and she really gets brought down to earth on this one and gets to have a, a rough and tumble time. And it restored her uh, her image a little bit being put alongside the, the rising star of James Stewart as well here. I, I think she appears so naturalistically. I think, I, like I wrote in the little letterbox review, when they appear on screen together, it feels as though they're naturally in love. It feels like it's a fact. I mean, it, it doesn't feel like an action they're taking or an acted uh, play that love is not bad. It feels like there's, it's real chemistry is what I mean. It's not yeah. faked chemistry. There's nothing constructed there. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of that comes through for both of their alluring personalities. I think it's very hard for either of them to be matched on screen with someone, uh, you know, and, and not feel that sensation of. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> like I commented last night, like James Stewart, obviously just matched with everyone on screen. He had, he has the best um, filmography of chemistry with other women than I think any other actor. Of all but time. this is, this is really like his, his zenith of like young male attractability on screen. I think he's, he's very handsome, very charming within the film. And Marlena Dietrich is still like a screen goddess and, and she's having such a, a, a fun time as well. She's she's so like charming and alluring and performative throughout the film. Uh, and, and I think this is I wouldn't one even of her, say one of her performative, honestly. I feel like well, it's, well, performative it's so in the natural. Sense, 
Like, yeah, performative in the sense that she has this grand yeah, personality yeah. and it's just know, this... singing in like baritone. <laughs> I mean... Oh yeah, that's and that's obviously a point of the allure. So I think this is yeah. if, if I recall right, this is like probably your like like this is your first real brush with Marlena Dietrich. If I Only right. touch of evil, which right not a you know not the same it's, it's not a marlena dietrich yeah. film it's a very exactly. great character for her and it was surprising there's a funny anecdote about that is that the uh the universal executives were like looking at the dailies one day and they're like is that marlena dietrich in our movie <laughs> how did we get her what because orson welles yeah. just asked her to do it as a favor because they were like good good friends from like earlier days it, it's a great bit but yeah not not her movie. it's not it's not a, a very big role for one thing and it's not a starring role and it's not a you know marlena dietrich role for sure yeah it's the um, first real role that i've seen her in and i'm already deeply attracted to her as an actor and a person as as a living object or not i don't want to call her an object yeah, but like, that's, that's like an object of affection for the screen is kind of what i'm getting at yeah she's one of the great um romancers of the camera is what i'll say you know the she definitely knows how to interact with it and how to draw in an audience and um you know really find that and, and she's got that unique quality about it again like one of the things talking about her in the in the documentary as well is that she's this singular you know like uh allure that that rides the line really between, yeah. that flirts between masculine and feminine qualities and of course it's uh, no better embodied than in her singing voice which is incredibly like this very deep you know baritone that she really leans into and uh you know it is entirely uh its own thing it's entirely singular and uh you know the more films you see her in and doing that in particular i think the more you find that affection and that unique brand of uh allure that she has and particularly this very distinct european quality that she brings that she brought over from uh you know growing up and living in, in making films in germany first being discovered by sternberg with the the, the blue angel and then coming to, to hollywood and bringing that as, as kind of a competition for for greta garbo for paramount and then just flourishing off of that with her career she has a fascinating career not only as a performer but as growing to be like this this icon of uh you know america as well as particularly in the later years when she took up being a, a you know a rallying entertainer for the troops and taking a staunch anti-nazi position coming from berlin they did try and lure her back as well uh yeah, yeah like sure. P P goebbels like offered her you know like a you know starring prominence as the the shining star of the you know uh not nazi you know uh propaganda unit and whatnot she very very anti-nazi <laughs> yeah um which sounds so obvious to be at this time, but offered all that at that time, it may be less obvious. Well, and this is around the time that that was happening to 1939, you know, the, that's only right. uh, a couple of years off. Like this is when, you know, uh, Britain is engaged in, in war, you know, Poland's already been invaded and such. Right. Regardless, that doesn't have so much to do with Westerns, but this helped definitely solidify her image as uh, kind of, you know, a, function of americana as well as she kind of because this was the first time she really embraced that aspect like the idea of her doing a western to her at first was very ridiculous <laughs> because on paper it does imagine. sound it does sound odd you know because she's very overtly european you know she's got that thick you know german accent and so she does feel a little odd here but um well, at least she would feel odd but the 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 realization of the town of bottleneck i think is so 
full of character and interest and this personality she has is this kind of like fabulous you know uh singer here and personality <laughs> of the town i think just shines and it really embraces that idea of her personality i think no matter what how you look at it dietrich and stewart fit so well into this town as well this bottleneck town they they feel like they've always lived there and they're worn in like even once they arrive they they feel a part of that scenery i i, I took that john Cotto quote marlene dietrich when you wear feathers and furs and plumes, you wear them as the birds and animals wear them, as though they belong to your body, which I thought was the uh, truest possible thing, just based off this one film to say about her. Whether it's like ripped skirts or feathers, you know, uh, it looks like she embodies whatever mm -hmm. it is. Everything's she, she, a part of her and it's a fact. She was very in tune in terms of her like costuming throughout her career, very uh, obsessed uh, with that and played a prominent role in bringing that, particularly like you, like you said, mentioned there in the feathers and stuff. Yeah, like the gown and feature. feather at the end, really beautiful. And it's and it really ties into her, her personality throughout her uh, career. But yeah, well, one of the things I really love about the film as well is how like energetic and full of life the the town of bottleneck is and the characters beyond just uh dietrich and stewart the opening shot i think of the film is just just enough to kind of really pull you in and tell you what's going on it's this nice long tracking shot under the credits where like this town is just like erupting in the most raucous you know kind of <laughs> western you know um you know hole that you that you can kind of picture in your mind and you know like there's there's violence spilling out of the bar before you're even allowed to enter yeah and then, you know, once you do get inside, it's this very, like, you know, jaunty, celebratory area. You got, you know, Dietrich parading around, singing her song. Right. And it's just, and, and, it, and it sets a very vibrant tone right out the gate, which the film just continues to, you know, build upon as it goes along. By the time you get to the scene where she's playing a poker game and tricks the the, the, the Russian guy out of his pants. <laughs> right. I mean, like the whole town's been like won over in like a poker game, right? Like the, the town drunk or something. So it... there's it, the, the, the town is ostensibly run by, um, you know, the, 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 the guy who runs the bar, who's uh, mm. Brian Dunleavy. Uh, he would go on to star in Preston Sturgis's uh, The Great McGinty the, the next year. And he's, I think, I think a really great antagonist uh, in the film, he provides a great uh, force. Uh, for Stuart to kind of you know brush up against uh, once he finally arrives into the film and you know he's kind of in uh, cahoots with Dietrich and the mayor of the town and they they kill off the sheriff um, and, and attempt to kind of cover it up by hiring the the town drunk as the next sheriff they appoint yeah. him but you know he and, and that's and I think a great part of the function of the plot there he's like I'm, I'm gonna hire Tom Destry as his kid's still around this famous western hero and and so when Jimmy Stewart rolls up into town and he's kind of more and more humble and uh, friendly and uh, non non aggressive, you know, James Stewart here, it's it's like this, you know, funny subversion of that Western hero archetype. Uh, well, I get. I know it's based on an earlier movie that not too many people saw in a book that already existed, but it's called Rides Again. Do you know what that means? That there was a Destry Rides like. Is this a series of Western canon in a book? Uh, it was a character like Destry, I think, was a kind of typical character. In particular, Destry Rides Again uh, was earlier made at Universal by mm -hmm. uh, in, in the early 1930s by uh, Tom Mix, who was this like very archetypical, you know, uh, Western star, uh, kind of like a Harry Carey <laughs> from like the generation prior. And so Universal took like they, they still had the rights to the novel. 
and they just basically threw everything out and kept the name and you know the kind of like the basic premise of the character here and you know we're essentially spoofing the westerns of the the, <laughs> yeah. the decade before here and it really does it, it turns like the idea of you know the the western icons on their head it does a lot of flipping with gender roles and expectations and such and and really undercuts that idea of the mythos of the hero while still maintaining the basic um values of the of the genre uh through the end there it just it kind of you know like turns them up and says you know there's different ways we can do this uh i, I love the way that james stewart's introduced in the film because it is this like total subversion of their expectations and oh, yeah he, he's even like he, he comes and he's holding like the bird and the umbrella they accuse him of being you know like like too feminine or whatever they give him like a mop and a bucket to like you know clean up the town with he he doesn't carry yeah. a gun at all he's like a he takes like a total pacifist route throughout most of the film to try and deal with the problems going on here and and at first everyone's like very mocking of him for for that but it ends up you know like he, he's able to really like you know prove himself capable of that and and living up to that legacy that's kind of instilled by his father and and particularly later i, li- I like the scene in which they do show him once he does finally pick up a gun and he shoots all the knobs off mm-hmm. of that thing and and it's a, a great bit because it is so comical done because like it's not like he's even trying to aim it just like very loosely firing off like he might as well be shooting from like over his shoulder or whatever and doing trick shots and just like flawlessly shooting the knobs off of this thing <laughs> And all that kind of the opposite of how we're introduced to Dietrich with that gender flip of her singing like baritone and being just like, you know, so rambunctious and uh, more how we'd expect a man to act within a bar in that era. Exactly. And and it continues to do it in scenes throughout it, particularly the probably the most famous scene of the movie, which is the big uh, cat fight sequence in which she goes like toe to toe with uh, Una Merkel after she approaches Dietrich, uh, you know, being the, the husband of... The, the, the Russian man who had his pants taken off uh, by her in the bed. And so they get into this really like violent brawl in the middle of yeah. the, the bar. And it's a real fight. Like uh, uh, Dietrich and Merkel like lobbied to do it for real instead of having oh, really? stunt doubles. Yeah. And, and they basically made a pact and say, uh, we're going to do this for real. I'm going to pull out your hair and like go nuts. Uh uh, you know, and, and just have a good time with it. And they got like a lot of publicity doing it. Like the the, the studio made sure to really get there and have photographers. It was a whole deal. Afterwards, they they were pretty bruised up and <laughs> and injured afterwards. But it's it's a brilliant idea for it because again, it it continues to you know subvert like the expectations of of the gender and you know uh, we don't see women western. fight in the bar rooms of westerns exactly often, like even the, now yeah it, yeah in in western films there's these very kind of like strict roles that the women have they're very you know virginal or they're you know they're very like sequestered to the sidelines of the story and whatnot and the men have all the the violent disputes and stuff and even the men are like kind of like pigeonholed into like a messiah complex that they have to fulfill. yeah and and destry really like like turns that around and it gives them a lot more agency particularly with una merkel's character as like there's the great there's a great sequence where she's chastising her her husband about the pants thing she's literally got like a, a gun telling him to give the guy his pants back the pants like, gimmick I, goes I, a long way by the way i mean they get a lot of mileage out of it's it. it's great it's a great bit i i have a lot of fun with it and um but uh, also the film is not just like this kind of you know ridiculous absurd parody throughout it's also like a, a genuinely 
compelling western story at the center of it all even if you stripped away the, think, the comedy well i think that part just okay for me i think stagecoach obviously the better western at that time but yeah yeah that, that doesn't really move me that story but it's not as fair a comparison uh you know i would say like the, they're very different films in many ways but i think like the investigative aspect of it destry trying to uncover things and particularly as you build up to the emotional climax you know mm-hmm. with the romance developing and such and and the film having the you know the, the the balls the wherewithal to go through with the the killing of one of its leads like that in a sincere manner uh yeah. you know i i think is is very effective uh and again, it's it's where a stagecoach is very like structured and very um, you know regimented and, and you know and thorough in its presentation of its narrative and very successful at that and basically is kind of like the you know go to western in terms of you know how how well polished it is right. in its presentation of it and in is in its own way subversive with its character tropes and how it flips the script. Uh, Destry is just like I think uh, an even greater example of how it you know contorts and twists expectations and stereotypes even if it's not as um, kind of uh, superlative as a western narrative per se yeah I, I still think it looks good and holds up on screen as well the black and whites look good it looks like there's always like smoke in the background uh, very good at framing shots like even like the carriage ride into the town or whatever like the wagon ride I mean it'll you know, it's framed nicely. It it feels like it's a it's a good vision of a town. A bottleneck is a good uh, feeling to it. A good I think it's an, yeah, an incredibly realized setting for the story that not a lot of other westerns have. I think it's very easy for like western towns to be very plain, forgettable, cliched. You know, in films, whereas bottleneck feels very lively, very realized, and full of a, a cast of interesting characters throughout. The, know the town on on both sides of the conflict there i think you have a compelling cast uh filled out by some very capable character actors uh it, yeah it's not just Stuart and dietrich the people around them are also pretty good they're, they're fun to watch as well um, because it's my first time i don't feel like i have a whole lot on it but it is one that i do feel like will reward consistent yeah. viewing habits I definitely think it's it's liable to catch you off guard because as I think as you said I think you summed it up very well it's a very modern uh, picture in so many ways and it's it's not beholden to conventions of any kind even the kind that something like you know in the way that stagecoach isn't but stagecoach founds its own new conventions and it sticks mm. very very much to those whereas Destry not only does it break from conventions it's, it's not about conventionality at all yeah at all yeah but it's also it's such a a breezy experience i think it's so full of energy and liveliness and humor throughout and it's short i mean i it'll be very easily rewatchable absolutely and i think it's it's a very easy film to to love and to be taken with and to be charmed by um and you know if it were just that i think it would already be great but the fact that it does you know take the opportunity to reinvent the genre subvert expectations and just allow you to to soak in the the environment the setting the characters and all that i think it makes it a very surprising and rewarding film from the genre and a, and a great example of how different the western can be while still being uniquely and singularly of the the, the time and setting I do expect to keep coming back to it for all those yeah. reasons because they're all there. And I think, like I said about Dietrich and Stewart, it's just a fact of the movie. I mean, it's matter of fact that this is really good. It's built a great construction of the West and it has a smooth 
almost modern. It's almost like it's been edited to the way a modern comedy would work. It's it's fantastic how it moves. Um, okay, I I guess it did have one influence on me. <laughs> oh. I, okay, I like to pick up hobbies while I'm watching films. So, um, <laughs> can I can I guess? Are you are you whittling now? Absolutely. So <laughs> I saw Stuart whittling, and I'm like, I'm gonna order a carving knife. So that was my purchase while I was watching. Um, then I went out this morning, early in the morning. I went to the beach and found some wood. So uh, I'm waiting on my carving knife to arrive, and uh, I'm gonna start whittling away. That's that's hilarious. I love that. I think because that's, that's a great little bit, especially as he, like he's doing it first in the stagecoach, and he's making what it looks like what we would like now consider like napkin holders. It's like, right. it's like a little ring. <laughs> I and love I that he he builds them with such utility that they're just like holders for things. Like he he doesn't build like things they really want. Just. And, and it's just like a, a, a natural exercise for him right. and that, that he recommends to like other characters in the film. And, and it's a humorous, you know, an endearing aspect of his character. But the fact that that made such an impression on you, I just, I, I love this. <laughs> yeah, I, I went and got a really nice uh, carving knife and I spent the morning looking along the whole beach side of Lincoln Park, uh, a nice uh, park on the sound. Uh, I, I found a bunch of wood to start carving away at. So. That's, that's terrific. That's honestly the best outcome that could have come from watching i agree i'm so happy with this outcome because i've been thinking about it for weeks and then i i suddenly i saw jimmy stewart whittling away and i i thought damn i need to get on this and i like to pick up hobbies from movies too i like to try things out and uh i like i like that outcome from a movie more than being like oh that's a that's a 10 out of 10 movie i i really like that what if it gives you a hobby that's fucking Mm -hmm. great yeah, yeah that is terrific I, d- I do hope that you come back to the the film uh, oh, sometime yeah. uh because because it's just such a, a treat i think and uh I, I you know i was very happy to discover it last year i'm just gonna take a second here to plug the the criterion release which uh the was so compelling the artwork for it uh by uh mark aspinel that it's what made me choose to buy it i don't usually do any blind buys because i'm so frugal um, but, but I, a I chose this one. Western has to be worth owning. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's potentially like because they're so they, they can be so expensive. I was I was hesitant to, mm-hmm. but the artwork I just thought was so brilliant. It's got the 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 red background, the faces all there, Dietrich's dress blending in, and really great like facial you know uh, caricatures that are that are caught in. And I love the how the color scheme, the silver sea, really you know matches with the black and white um, rendition of the characters here. Is it's one of the most beautiful artworks I think in their collection, and it prompted really me to, good. to buy it. I, I actually bl- uh, blind bought it along with the Dietrich and Sternberg set, um, and but but I ended up selling that one, uh, that one after, after it was a, done. Less of a smart blind buy there. It's just well because there's there's a lot of them, and like it was just not all of them compelled me as much. But this yeah. film was like it's one of the best blind buys that I've chosen, and the extras on it were were pretty terrific and insightful and as well. So. I hardly recommend the Criterion release, uh, and particularly because of the artwork here, which is part of what compels us to buy so many Criterions to begin with. This one was a real treat. And I really liked it as well. It might not be a new favorite yet, but I feel like it has potential to keep climbing up my ranks as I rewatch it, at least to become even with the great Blazing Saddles. So. Yeah, I, I think it definitely should. For me, this is the the the, the kind of comedy Western uh, for me, but Blazing Saddles, obviously... 
uh, a good second, a good a good inheritor as well. You know, for me, it's definitely Blazing Saddles. I just and think I can, it's funnier. I, I, I didn't I can see laugh why. during this. I'll be well, honest. it's because it's 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 not as much of a strict comedy. It's not a comedy like Blazing Saddles is, yeah. where they're literally cracking jokes. This one there's is nothing to laugh at. But I I mean I don't I don't think there's nothing to laugh at. I think you know certainly things like the 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 cat fight sequence is hilarious. Jimmy sure. Stewart in yeah. general is is very humorous throughout. I'd the almost say it is great. I'd almost say it's a satire. In a way, uh, it's a it, satirical structure of a western. It is, and, and but and part of the beauty is that it can function as both. Whereas something like Blazing Saddles, I I think you'd be hard pressed to try and sell it as uh, <laughs> a, no as as a compelling western narrative. Oh, yeah, yeah. At the same time, I I don't think you can make that argument. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't think so at all. I think this is a better western than that, and it's funny in a satirical way. But but Blazing Saddles is better comedy. Yeah, yeah I'll give you that. I'll of give course, you that. and just one of the best movies. So. Well, well, we'll talk about that one for sure sometime too, but I'm glad we got this one in. I'm glad I convinced you to watch it because I do think it is so foundational, fundamental, and just a really great Western to highlight as well. Just such a fun watch that I hope it gets anyone else to watch it as well. Um, Ab- thanks absolutely. so much, man. Yeah, uh, what you. are we coming back with next week? We have a... Next week, uh, we are re-watching Harold and Maude. We talked about that from 1971, uh, Hal Ashby. So yeah. Is that the, the most famous Hal Ashby film? I it's got to it, be, yeah. We're going to go party at some funerals. So, <laughs> Well, that would be a, definitely a, another interesting discussion to have. I'm excited to get there. All right. Uh, thanks for tuning in, everyone, this week. Make sure, as always, to check out our website, thetwingeeks.com, for our latest reviews, retrospectives, and features. You can follow us on Twitter as well, at the Twin Geeks, and individually at Calvin Kempf and at David A. Punch. Don't forget to check out our sister video game show, The Daydream Cast with Pavlos and Brogan, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are played. Leave a review and rating if you can, and we'll see you next week for another conversation on classic and contemporary cinema. Yesterday I got-